is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The January 6th committee back at it to lay out its case that former President Trump and his inner circle plotted to overturn the 2020 election results. The committee heard from election officials in Georgia about how, how then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had a key role to pressure them. Was the legal and criminal case against the former president made stronger today? We go in-depth. A Supreme Court ruling muddies the waters a bit when it comes to the separation of church and state. And a hearing in Texas today goes in-depth into the police response to the school shooting in Uvalde. And it shows that police were there quickly but didn't act quickly enough. Two Americans fighting in Ukraine captured by Russia. They're now POWs, but since they're not official U.S. troops, can America help them? New recommendations might change the way parents put the babies to sleep. The goal is to stop sudden deaths, and a new study finds the best sleep is when you're next to your partner. We start with the January 6th hearing. With us is Jack Pitney, presidential politics expert and political analyst at Claremont McKenna College. Jack, thanks for being with us. So uh, today was really uh, the hearing was really focused on showing the involvement, the personal involvement of then-President Trump in this wide-ranging plot to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Convincing? Yes. Uh, We had seen the outlines of this case before. We knew Trump had tried to pressure the Georgia Secretary of State. The uh, uh, tape has been out for some time. Uh, But to have the testimony, to listen again to the recordings was quite powerful. And Trump obviously was pressuring uh, people to change the results of an election he knew that he had lost. Surprising or not how far some of this went? And and you can gauge that from from your perspective or from you think what the general public will think, especially when we talk about things like the slate of the separate electors. People thought maybe, okay, that was a text message thing, but they actually wrote them down and they signed certificates that were not real and they sent them in like they were the real deal. Uh, That's right. That's going to make an impression on people. Again, the outlines of the story uh, had been reported, but millions of people are seeing this for the first time. Uh, it's not going to drastically change public opinion, but it is going to reach people who otherwise wouldn't have known much about this. But th- is this really about public opinion? And we've all talked about this before. Or is the whole exercise here partly for history, but mainly directed at the Department of Justice? Yes, there's an audience at the Justice Department. The Attorney General has already made it clear that he and prosecutors are paying close attention, and they are probably picking up some pointers. They uh, may have gathered a lot of this information on their own, but there may be facts that the uh, committee uncovered that uh, the Justice Department hadn't previously been aware of. Uh, So uh, this is strengthening the case for prosecutions. Well, to that note, previously unaware, I guess there's a subpoena for this documentary footage that seems to have caught everybody by surprise that hopefully we'll learn about in in the coming days or weeks. Uh, A U.K. team that was over filming a whole bunch of things and and even some of the reporting saying that that Team Trump is is, um, kind of shocked that this is this is out there somewhere. Uh, That's right. And that could uh, be very consequential, both from the standpoint of public opinion and from the standpoint of evidence. We uh, haven't seen the video, of course, don't know what's on it. 
but uh, it could be uh, another uh, repetition of the lesson. When you're doing a crime, don't invite a documentary crew to film you doing it. (laughs) But let me ask you something. I I mean, you know, in talking about public perception and all that and, and who the audience is, you have to juxtapose what's been going on with the hearing, I suppose, and look what happened over this past weekend in Texas, where the uh, Texas Republican Party holds its annual convention, and they officially declare that uh, Joe Biden did not did not get elected legitimately, uh, and they totally buy into the lie uh, that Donald Trump is perpetuating that he's, in effect, the legitimate president. And we also had somebody on the show who talked about how, from Texas, who talked about how even though it's a small group of Republicans at the convention, it does represent a large number of Republicans in Texas and in the country. So where does that put us? Uh, That uh, puts us at a dangerous state of division. There are uh, a lot of people in the general electorate who believe uh, the big lie and everything that has gone along with it. Uh, and they're impervious to evidence. Uh, and uh, as Trump, uh, as uh, Giuliani acknowledged at one point, uh, quoted in the uh, in the hearing, I have a lot of theories, but I have no evidence. Uh, and that uh, is kind of the story of the uh, uh, of the Trump defense: a lot of theories, but no evidence. But a lot of people buy into it, and that's going to continue to lead to division in the country. Jack Pitney, Claremont's McKenna College. Big goal of the January 6th committee to lay out a clear case for federal prosecutors to better help them decide if they want to file charges against former President Trump and others in his inner circle. Jen Ronis is a criminal defense attorney and legal analyst with extensive experience working in the federal court system. Jen, thanks for being with us. So uh, we've talked a lot on this show about how these hearings are serving dual purposes, uh, you know, one being for the public record, uh, the other being to perhaps lay out a kind of blueprint for potential prosecution uh, if prosecution is in store for Mr. Trump and others. But uh, you have a background in criminal defense. What's the president's defense from what you've heard thus far? What would it be? I also want to add there's one for history. There's a third reason history needs to record this as well. But yeah, so look, um, but as in any criminal case, we're basically only hearing one side, although the one side seems very compelling, um, you know, just from a lawyer's point of view. And, and just keep in mind, this isn't a criminal proceeding. This is an investigation by Congress to try to show the public really what occurred. And I think from that perspective, they've done a, a tremendous job now, you know, um, President Trump may have a defense, and certainly he's not obligated to lay it out right now, and it may be that he's never charged, um, and, he, and he very well may not be charged. That isn't really Congress's role. I understand the Justice Department is seeking a lot of the records maybe to open that criminal investigation if one hasn't already occurred, but this thing needs to play out at least before Congress, and the American public need to see the facts as, as they've been presented, and I and I think indisputably there's facts. There may be some some corrections to be made along the way, but I, I think they've laid out a compelling case. Can the former president say, though, that, you know, I truly believed that I had won and I was fighting for that, and I believed not only that, but I believed what, what this set of lawyers told me, even after the other set said 
it wasn't true. Um, you know, I, I believed uh, what's been painted as, as Team Crazy instead of Team Normal, and that's not my fault. They're still lawyers. And at the end of the day, I thought I was doing the right thing. Well, you could certainly say that, and it's a matter of the credibility of the president and asking the public to believe or a jury to believe that that might be true. But there's other compelling evidence to show, at least that I've seen so far, that there's corroborating evidence to believe that, that was, the whole thing was a, was a farce, uh, and it was a delusion on the part of the president, uh, per, perhaps driven by the information that was given to him by by John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. I mean, there's just no evidence that I've seen that corroborates that the president could possibly believe that what uh, he was being told by these people uh, was true. I mean, he, I think, was the prime mover behind getting these people involved and motivated to make the calls and the arm twisting that they did. And I think it's attributable to him. But we we, we don't know his side of the of the. Of the version yet. Well, Jan, am I right? Isn't there a, a, a doctrine in law, and, a, and the, the name for it escapes me at the moment. Advice but... of counsel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that. Advice of counsel. <laughs> no, no, but, but isn't, isn't there this concept that even if somebody like Mr. Trump were to say, look, I, to Mike's point, I really believed this, and maybe he did believe it, right, that he nonetheless should have had reason to believe that the information he was getting was incorrect. For those like Giuliani, who is telling him, Mr. President, you actually won this. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, he have to consider the the source. I mean, from the reports I read, uh, Giuliani appeared to have been intoxicated or delusional during the period of time in which he was giving a lot of this advice to the president. But there's other evidence that would undermine the thought of the president that that that, that I truly believe this. I mean, it's just there has absolutely been no evidence presented or uncovered that there was anything other than minimal fraud, as always occurs in elections, perhaps among the various states. But the massive fraud, the stuffed ballot boxes, the the, the uh, voting machines that were corrupted by foreign sources, all that, has, they, they were fantasies created by Trump and Eastman and Giuliani and Mark Meadows and some of the other people involved to try to steal this election that was run by President Biden. So it's just a disgusting uh, state of events that we're, we're, we've come to this point and all the manifestations that the American public are suffering as a result of, I think, the corruption at, at the level that I'm discussing. Jen Ronis, criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, extensive experience working in the federal system. And still ahead, two Americans fighting with Ukrainians are now in Russian hands. We look into what Russia could do to them. And the key to getting a good night's sleep might be finding a person to sleep next to you. Right now, the Supreme Court makes what could be a big ruling on church and states as parents who send their kids to private religious schools have rights to tuition aid if the state provides it to other similar private schools. Court had said in the past that giving public funds to church and schools violated the First Amendment. So what's changed? Michael McConnell, director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School, former judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Thanks for being here. So what has changed or has just the makeup of the court changed? I think it's much more than the makeup of the court. This is this decision was no surprise. It's really the culmination of 30 years of gradual movement of the court away from the idea that the First Amendment requires discrimination against uh, religious schools toward the idea uh, that uh, the United States and all the states have to be neutral uh, between religion and non-religion. So I think most people expected this decision. So... In practical terms, what does it actually mean? Well, in practical terms, it means that when states choose to uh, to subsidize 
uh, private schools along with others, and, and this would be this probably will extend beyond just schools to other uh, nonprofit organizations. That when they fund nonprofit organizations, including schools, that they can't discriminate on the basis of the religious nature of those organizations. Does that then create other tricky situations, though, where there's going to be a lot of debate about what to fund and what not to fund if it does, you know, go into other organizations, not just schools? Well, actually, I think it reduces the number of tricky situations because it's not always easy to tell what a religious school is. And now that's irrelevant. They simply decide whether the whether the uh, organization provides the kinds of services uh, that the government is intending to subsidize, in this case education, and they don't have to fly-spec the curriculum and find out whether it has too many references to Jesus Christ. So what was the central argument against this sort of ruling? Uh, the The Supreme Court used to... And, and just for about a 25-year period, so this is not a long-standing doctrine, but it used to hold uh, that it was actually unconstitutional uh, to uh, for, for public funds to go to religious schools. Uh, that was never based on anything particularly persuasive. They claimed that it was based on on history. That is a you know a strict wall of separation as espoused by uh, Jefferson and Madison. Uh, but if you actually look at that history, it would, did not support the, the Supreme Court's interpretation. And I just think it has taken us several decades to unwind from that very big mistake on the part of the court. And we know, I mean, if you look at some of those early opinions, they were heavily infected by a kind of a, a sense that Catholic schools in particular uh, were un-American, that the, the the whole history of denial of, educa- of funding for uh, uh, primary and secondary education was bound up with a kind of ugly uh, uh, anti-Catholicism. That's Michael McConnell, director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law and a former judge, U.S. Court of Appeals, 10th Circuit. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. Hearing in the Texas State Senate today, providing a lot more insight into the police response in Uvalde, where a shooter killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary. The head of the Texas Department of Public Health says there was sufficient armed law enforcement on scene to stop the shooter just three minutes after he entered the school. He also said the door to the classroom with the shooter inside was likely unlocked the entire time. Here to discuss the hearing and police response is Rich Emberlin, former Dallas police SWAT officer and 30-year law enforcement veteran, and he's trained officers to deal with shooters. Rich, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, guys. So, you know, it's hard to begin uh, on what is the more remarkable thing that that one has heard now from this testimony from Texas's uh, own uh, highest, I guess he's the highest ranking law enforcement uh, official there. Yeah. Uh, so let's, I guess, unpack it one by one. Um, he says that within three minutes of arrival of the gunman at the school, there was enough law enforcement officers to, in effect, take him down. And that would have been, what, 97 minutes before it actually ended. Yes. And it doesn't matter if there was three, if there was one there. And my litmus test is, and I tell everybody when I teach this stuff, if I didn't have a gun and I was outside of my daughter's high school 
and I heard gunfire, I'm grabbing a garbage can lid and a stick, and I'm going inside because shooters usually self-inflict when they're confronted or, you know, you, you, you have to go in. You don't have to wait on three or four or ten people. And this is we, – we've done so much better since Columbine in 1999. Their, their response time, and God bless those guys, they weren't trained up, and it's not their fault. But it took an hour and 45 minutes. And you go all the way to 2019, the Dayton shooter, I don't know if you remember that, he pulled out a rifle, and from his first shot to him being shot was 32 seconds, and he was dead. Officers are running toward gunfire right now. We've taught them how to – find the noise and make it stop, as I say. And this is such a setback, and I'm sad it's in my state. So then what happened in this case? Was someone telling those three not to go in, or was it those three who didn't want to go in? I mean, who no, eventually sure the officers gets wanted to go in, in trouble for I this? They, their, their chief, in my personal opinion, Pedro Arandondo, told him not to. He thought it was a barricade situation. It's not a barricade situation. When you're sitting outside of school and you hear gunfire, every one of those shots is a kid either being hurt or killed. And that brings and us 77 to... minutes is, is time enough for people that have been shot to miss their golden hour and get saved. And that brings us to the barric- the, the, the alleged barricade situation. Uh, with an unlocked door. With an unlocked door. I mean, I, I don't know. The door is closed. It doesn't occur to anybody to, I don't know, turn the knob. In SWAT, we all have the key to the city. It's called a slammer, and you slam the door open. We don't need keys. We know how to get in with, you know, fire tools and slammers. We but, don't, we but, they don't didn't, but, but that's my point. They didn't even need to do that. They could have apparently, like, turned the knob. You know, and you're exactly right, sir. I've gone to many a search warrant where we were about to slam a door, and I was at the knob side, and I just twisted the knob, and I went, okay, the door's open. Let's yeah. go. It's that simple. And this is all, this is so ridiculous, and it's so sad, and it's such a setback for us in law enforcement, because these young troops that worked for this guy were brave, and then they got told to stop you have by to... somebody who doesn't know, in my opinion, what he's talking about. And at this point, you can't blame any of those parents who were outside who tried no. to go in because it had been so long. And the Border Patrol guy who did go in was, I found out the other day, because I just taught down there in McAllen, well, a town called Far, which is not too far from Uvalde. But I heard from some of the officers there. They said that guy was getting his hair cut at his barber shop, and he heard about the shooting, and his wife's a teacher, and his daughter goes there, and he borrowed a shotgun from the barber, went to that chief and said, you know who I am, and I'm going in. And he went in, and he got fragged a little bit, but he did put it into the the, the problem. Let, let me ask you this, uh, though, because you're, you're you're sort of letting off the hook the, the other officers and, and kind of you know, pointing, not kind of, you are pointing the finger at, at the chief, but don't they have a kind of responsibility that, uh, I mean, they've got brains. If they're standing there and they know that the situation inside is perilous, uh, and that's an understatement at best, even if the chief says, no, let's, you know, let's you, just hang out, don't they have a kind of moral responsibility to say, no, nah, you're wrong, chief, and go in? You are exactly right. You can look at the chief and say, you can fire me later if you want to, but I'm going in. 
and that's what they should have done. And they're, in my opinion, at fault as well. You can't sit outside of a school and listen to that for 77 minutes. You're exactly right. They should have just, there's, we have a moral obligation to go inside and they failed. And I don't want to try them in the media, but they're not going to charge with anything. They need to be canned in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. But they sat outside and let this guy tell him not to go in. No, you're not telling me not to go in. And I'm not some kind of a bad tough guy, but it's children being shot and he, we have a thing called the priority of life in SWAT and in police work. And the hostage is our highest priority. Then people around the hostage are a second. And then officers and the suspect is the lowest on our priority of life. He needs to be put down. And this kid, this 18-year-old, I say kid, he needs to be put down. And those officers that listened to him and didn't say, you can fire me later, I have a I have a big problem with that. Rich Emberlin, former Dallas police SWAT officer, 30-year law enforcement veteran, and has trained officers to deal with shooters. Uh, Rich, thanks. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has made an unannounced visit to Ukraine. He is there to discuss helping that country prosecute Russians accused of war crimes. This comes as Russia says it's captured two Americans who were fighting alongside Ukrainians. They were there on their own, not part of any official U.S. military operation. A spokesman for Vladimir Putin says he wouldn't guarantee they wouldn't face the death penalty. Can and would the U.S. try to help free them? Dan Blakely, Special Ops Army Ranger veteran, co-author of the book The 20-Year War, which documents the experience of U.S. troops during the war on terror. Dan, thanks for being here. So I guess uh, Russia basically taking the Geneva Convention right off the table. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important distinction that, uh, you know, the, the uh, Kremlin press secretary basically said um, yesterday and uh, really just wiping off the clarification of what actually qualifies as a, quote, soldier of fortune, the words that he used or what people classify as a mercenary. Um, he was pressed multiple times to say what war crimes specifically that these uh, two Americans have faced. And he just kept on repeating that, you know, these were soldiers of fortune, which the Kremlin laid this out very early on in the beginning of the war. And on March 3rd, when, uh, you know, the defense minister basically came out and said, if anybody volunteers to fight alongside Ukraine, you will not face the same uh, international humanitarian law like the Geneva Convention you will not have the luxury of being a prisoner of war. Uh, so that was a very clear statement at the beginning of the war, and you could see them acting out today. So what, if anything, does, can the U.S. do? Uh, you know, this is, this is right up the Kremlin's alley. They are going to utilize these two, uh, you know, Americans as a bargaining chip. They are going to try and make the U.S. bend over backwards to, whether that's, you know, uh, lessen the amount of weaponry or completely withdraw any sort of weaponry and, and financial aid and assistance to Ukraine, uh, whether that's trying to uh, broker some sort of deal in, you know, trading of, of personnel between the U.S. and Russia or Ukraine and Russia, um, it's going to be their way of trying to get in and trying to, again, make the West and ultimately the U.S. bend to their, uh, to their ideals. And I guess they assume time's on their side because we know how long it can take to get people back from countries. Yeah, absolutely. And you're seeing uh, them 
play basically the same uh, the same uh, you know book with uh, Brittany Griner that's over there. Yes, she's being prosecuted more for you know domestic crimes, but uh, they're going to just just play the long game on this. That is Russia's mo. That's what they like to do is they want to see how far you know any country is willing to go to to press for their people or press for their um, you know their their plans and initiatives that they want to to see executed and. And this is just something that they're going to continue to press on for as long as they can. How are those two likely to be treated? Well, because they've very clearly said that they are not going to uphold the same standards of humanitarian international law. Um, they are not going to have the same luxuries of the prisoner of war, prisoners of war. Um, I'm concerned that they certainly will, uh, you know, will torture them and torment them in, in certain ways. Uh, this is a very public um you know, action and thing that is happening, though, that is playing out. And so I, I do not believe that the Kremlin's going to be so stupid to uh, torture them to the point of where, you know, we can't get proof of life and, and you know, again, keep them as a bargaining chip and, and something that they try and negotiate with. Um, but I, I certainly think that, you know, they'll, they'll unfortunately go through days of, of torment and torture that, uh, that uh, is, is probably not going to be pleasant. Yeah. How much will we even know about some of that until maybe we finally do get them back? Even in the Brittany Griner case, which you mentioned, I mean, they like moved her somewhere else the other week. And, and the, her lawyer who was trying to check up on her says, I don't know where she is right now. I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, that's right. And uh, nobody in the Kremlin, like I said, the press secretary, he was, he was pressured on that same question. And uh, he didn't have an answer. He said, you know, it's 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 being prosecuted the way, you know, within our laws and she's being handled within the bounds of our laws. And uh, I'll leave it at that, which is uh, a ridiculous statement to say, basically, that they're going to do what they want uh, until, again, they get some concessions that they they think are in their favor. I'm curious, how easy is it to become a mercenary? It seemed like these guys, you know, it was pretty easy. Well, I, I want to make very, very clear. So to, to be an international uh, foreign legion, to join an international foreign legion, it's, it's not too difficult. Um, it happens... Uh, really all across the world. But the definition of a, of a mercenary is somebody who is motivated to take part in the hostilities uh, by desire of private gain or promised uh, by the party in conflict material compensation substantially in excess of that promise or paid to combatants of similar rank and functions in the armed forces of that party. That is directly from the Geneva Convention. So these people were not mercenaries. They were not being paid uh, to the same level or in excess of those that are active in the Ukrainian army. So uh, the definition is, is pretty clear and it's, it's written in such a way so that people are not, uh, you know, basically uh, paid hires to come, you know, kill some, some uh, country's enemies uh, to try and make sure that there's a clear distinction there. A lot of the people that volunteered at the beginning of this war were not were not motivated by financial gains. They were motivated by the imagery that they were seeing of people being slaughtered across the country uh, there in Ukraine. And that is, again, a very clear distinction that I want to make. Yeah, you join a foreign legion for the cause, right? It's just that Russia doesn't recognize the cause here. Exactly. And, and that is something, again, the press secretary for, for the Kremlin was, was very clear of trying to skirt that as an answer. And again, they made their their point very clear back in March, the beginning of March, is that they were going to see anybody that volunteers to fight alongside Ukraine 
as a mercenary, even if it does not fit within the bounds of the definition within the Geneva Conventions. Dan Blakely, Special Ops Army Ranger veteran, co-author of the book, The 20-Year War, documents the experience of U.S. troops during the war on terror. Dan, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The American Academy of Pediatrics has new recommendations that uh, may change how parents put the babies to sleep. Now says the popular weighted swaddles and blankets should not be used on sleeping babies. The goal is to try to stop uh, sleep-related baby death. The AAP says around 3,400 babies across the country suddenly and unexpectedly die each year while sleeping. Dr. Daniel Ganjian is a pediatrician at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, these these blankets, the swaddles, they've been used for quite a while. How come it took so long for folks to figure out that it's a potential problem? Well, we at the American Academy of Pediatrics have been trying to dissuade parents from using any blankets, uh, pillows, or, or plush items in the baby's uh, crib. Um, and we've been doing it for years. The updated ones are that also no weighted blankets or no weighted sleepers. These are uh, these are specific blankets that have a little bit of a heavy part to one on the front that almost feel like you're getting a hug from a caregiver. And those are the ones that we're saying. And the latest, also the latest guidelines say no hats worn indoors, and that's pretty new, except for kids from the NICU. We, uh, we no longer recommend uh, baby hats uh, because uh, of the risk of uh, sudden infant death. And what is the risk from the hats? Oftentimes, they can cause the child to overheat, or the hats can move down on the face and cover the nose and or mouth. And I presume the, the issue with blankets is the, the child gets smothered, is that it, by going under the blanket? It's also a double issue, yes. The child can get smothered and not breathe, but also the child can get overheated as well. And with the the weighted aspect, did parents think, okay, you know, adults use these, try and fall asleep. You know, if we get stressed out, put yourself in the weighted blanket, you'll knock out. But they think, okay, my kid, maybe they're not great at sleeping. Um, Let's give them one of these, and it's going to help ease the process. And then then they thought there was no harm, no foul. Absolutely, yeah. Weighted blankets, I mean, if you ever use one yourself, it feels wonderful. It feels like you're getting a hug, and 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 babies need that. Uh, but they don't need the weighted blanket as it. They just need the hugs. Give them the regular hugs. That's the best weight that you can, natural weight you can give them. But they don't need the weighted blankets, sleepers, or swaddles. So parents instead should use what? They should use just regular blankets or muslin. Um, and not a regular blanket. I mean a swaddle uh, blanket. They're not weighted at all. Um, uh, also um, receiving blankets, which are very thin. Um, uh, and especially if you tie them the right way around the child, which is nice and tight, it doesn't, it won't be able to move up on the child's face. Those are much safer. And no co-sleeping, right? Like flat surface, separate away from you, same rooms, fine, but you know, give them their own space. Absolutely. No co-sleeping in the same bed. That's a, that's a big no-no. Although parents love it. Um, and breastfeeding moms, they, they think it's uh, much easier for them. What we do recommend is what's called, uh, they have these little cribs that you can put on the side of your bed that prevents any sort of dangerous thing for the child from uh, either rolling or parents roll on the child. And it's a flat sleeper that attached to that does it much safer than co-sleeping in the same mattress. I'm curious if you get much or any feedback or pushback from parents when you say you shouldn't use this, that, and the other thing. Oh, yeah. We receive a lot of pushback on it, absolutely. 
But we always tell parents, listen, there's 3,400 babies that die each year. And these are these are nice and healthy babies that die each year from sudden and unexpected deaths because of sleep. And anything we could do to prevent it, we'll do it. And, and for example, ever since we started introducing back to sleep, which means putting your baby on the back to sleep, the rates of sudden infant death have gone down dramatically. I guess you can't blame a lot of parents, too, for being a little confused, because if you go to the store and there's something there that says, hey, great for babies, and they're selling it, you assume it to be safe. And, and we got into this trouble with some of the like the bumpers and all that kind of stuff. It's, there's been recalls and new guidelines about those. I mean, they want to get the kid to sleep as, as best they can, and they think, okay, well, if some, this is in a box and it's it's got a baby on it, then it must be fine. They must have tested this. It must be okay. And that's the job of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. When they see something is dangerous, they put out a warning and recall it, like what they did with the Fisher Price, Fisher Price Rockers. Uh, that those were parents used to love them, but we were seeing there's been a lot of at least 14 dents linked to them. So those have been taken off the mar- off the market. And uh, and in May, President Joe Biden uh, signed into law legislation that prevents uh, companies from making any sleeping surfaces with greater than 10 degrees of elevation. I'm curious, is, is is the pushback that you get mostly from the moms or is it from grandma who says, I used to do that when <laughs> it was fine <laughs> and it was fine. <laughs> Grandmothers always say, yes, oh, that's different than what I'm and they're open to the difference. There's a lot different from when they used to go. Thing. We get usually the pushback is, is from our moms. Uh, they, they really some, some of them enjoy the co-sleeping a lot. Um, uh, but it's, some moms are really open to take our recommendations, and some are saying, no, we really want to still do it. Plus, you know, a lot of moms are seeing pictures, and dads are seeing pictures of, you know, parents sleeping with their child, especially like you'll see those babies, like dads sleeping on a, on a couch with a baby on, on their stomach and baby sleeping. That's one of the most uh, dangerous things, actually, but those, those pictures are circulating. So people are like, I've seen pictures of it. How could it be bad? We tell them, no, it could be bad. Don't uh, copy everything you see. So then Instagram is not helping either. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, social media is not helping. All right, Dr. Daniel Gangian, pediatrician, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. I like that. Grandma knows. Things change. Okay, if you're married or if you have a partner, do you like going to sleep next to them? Do you feel more refreshed in the morning? Feels like a commercial. (laughs) 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 If if you do, (laughs) a new study backs those feelings up. Is this like for Tinder, some dating app that I, this I is a commercial say, for? <laughs> Looking for a partner? Come to the partner store. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with us is Dr. <laughs> Michael Grandner, senior study author and director of the Sleep and Health Research Program, University of Arizona. So these guys did this study. Um, doctor, thanks for being here. So if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, what, stop sleeping solo? Yeah, well, what we found was, so we asked this question. Because a lot of what we know about sleep science is studying people sleeping on their own in a laboratory. But that's not how a lot of adults sleep. So um, this is actually a a student idea. We had this data set where we already asked about a 1,000 people in the community all kinds of questions about their sleep. And we wanted to see if those who slept alone versus those who slept with somebody else, if they slept better, and does it matter who you're sleeping with? and, and so that's why we asked the question. We, we couldn't quite say that one caused the other. Um, so there are other studies that show that sleeping with somebody that you have a good relationship with is probably a good thing. Uh, but we just wanted to see in the real world, are the people who are sleeping alone sleeping better or, or not? And, and what we found was kind of interesting. And you found what? Yeah, basically we found that overall, when people were sleeping with, with a spouse or partner, um, 
they actually reported sort of across the board uh, better sleep. They said they had fewer problems falling asleep. They felt their sleep was more restful. They felt like less sleepy during the day. Um, and, and, you know, pretty much any metric we looked at, they said was better, which is interesting because if you actually look in the laboratory when two people are sleeping in the same bed, um, actually your sleep tends to be biologically a little more shallow because they move, they might move around or make noise and then you hear it and then you might move around a little more. But actually, it doesn't seem to matter in terms of how you feel if anything goes the other way. But what's interesting is it wasn't just that someone was there, because we also asked, well, what if it's a kid in the bed with you? Because a lot of parents have that. Or what if it's a pet um, or, or some other family member because different cultures do different things? And essentially what we found was actually it wasn't the case for those categories. Like if you had a kid in the bed with you, you were more likely to report more difficulty sleeping and more, more shallow sleep during the night and feeling less rested the next day. Um, the pets sort of washed out where, where my guess is that uh, some pets are more interfering than others. But, but yeah, I mean, sleeping with, with a spouse or partner seemed to be um, a good thing. Um, so, yeah, that's what we found. What about uh, like a carve-out for snoring? If, if they snore a lot, yeah. maybe so, it's not going to work. So we controlled for that in the analysis because, um, you know, when, when your partner snores, um, you know, that, that could definitely disrupt your sleep. So we actually had a measure of snoring, and we threw that in the statistical analysis to say, like, you know, irrespective, you know, controlling for the level of snoring overall is it a thing. So what we, what, you know, maybe I can go back and take a look and look only in the subsets where it says, because we don't know if the spouse is snoring, but at least we know if the person is more likely to be snoring. Um, so we can see, we could maybe take a look at that. But, but yeah, it's a great question because um, you point out the fact that you know not all, not, not all spouses are, are easy to sleep next to either. I, did your study take into account in in the, in the case of partners or or a married couple? the longevity of the relationship? Because I'm, I'm wondering whether or not they reported better sleep in the beginning of the relationship than they did later on as the years went by. That, that is a great question. We did account for their perceived relationship quality where people, if, if they felt, you know, if they felt higher satisfaction with their relationship, um, that, that was generally a good thing. And that's based on, so, so there's a colleague of mine at the Rand Institute, her name's Wendy Troxell. She's another um, scientist who studies this. Um, and she's done some really pioneering work in this area, and that's sort of what she's, she had been finding, that it's not just that the relationship exists, it's, it's about the quality of the relationship, too. And I think, I think you hit on it uh, exactly, that, that overall, it might be, you know, this is a generally a good thing, but there's lots of different ways that this could, um, could color itself from one relationship to the other. Do you think maybe just for some people it, it doesn't work that way? I mean, some people are always going to miss the bed solo no matter what happens and like the celebrity oh, yeah. news today is carson daly saying like him and his wife got a sleep divorce they sleep in separate beds it's the best thing that ever happened to their marriage she says yeah sleep sleep divorce i don't like the term because it, divorce has such this negative connotation as being like a failure of some sort or a separation where we're actually a lot of couples are finding that that um so like the new thing is instead of instead of getting a king they get two twin xls so they call it a split king where they might have the same comforter and the same bed frame, but it's actually two separate mattresses that fit in there. And, and a lot of people love that, where you could be in the same room with them and feel close to them. That seems to be what might be driving these results. It's not that 
your sleep itself is better. It's that it's psychologically better. You feel protected. You feel, you know, you have that positive emotional connection with somebody. And, you know, if you can do that being on two separate mattresses, remember what I said before, being on the same mattress actually objectively might make your sleep slightly worse, even if subjectively you feel better. That might be the best of both worlds. Was the most surprising thing out of the study for you that there doesn't seem, based on what you're saying before, to be a correlation between the reporting of a better sleep and the biological uh, objective measurement of that sleep? Because it seems like it's really a a psychological issue. Yeah, I mean, so we couldn't look at the biological sleep in here. It's just other studies have looked at that and shown that. What I wanted to look at is, in a real world, when all this stuff washes out, what are people's real-world experiences? They're not experiencing those biological disruptions. They're experiencing better satisfaction. So that was super surprising, just not just that it was there, it was just how strong it was. It was pretty much every question we asked about sleep seemed to be better in people who, on average, tended to be sleeping with a spouse or partner. And what was funny is, it's not about being with somebody, because if it's your kid in the bed, that seemed to take things in the opposite direction. I, I am curious, when you ask for the reporting of the night after the sleep, do you talk to these couples separately or together? Because I'm wondering whether there's a bias. Oh, yeah. Like, if we were going to follow up with that, we would totally do that. This study, though, this was just asking questions. You know, this is surveying a thousand different people um, when, when, we, when we, we asked a large number of questions. One of them happened to be, how often do you sleep alone versus with a spouse or partner versus with a kid versus with a pet versus with someone else or another family member? Like, how many nights a week does this, does this tend to happen? And so that's that's really what it was based on. We didn't, ha- we weren't able to do interviews with this, these people. I mean, again, this was sort of an idea. Or originally, the study we were looking at all kinds of social and environmental impacts on sleep, and this was actually um, the idea of you know what we haven't looked at this bed sharing data. I bet, I bet there's something really interesting in there. You get them together, they say I slept great. You get them apart, they say they kick, <laughs> they stole the cover, they snore all night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Michael Grander, senior study author, director of that Sleep Health Research Program, University of Arizona. Why am I not surprised it was a student who came up with the idea? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. More in depth tomorrow.